Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Let me join the chorus of Happy Mother Mother's Days that you're hearing this morning. It's um, it's uh, great to be with you. It's great to be with you. Um, although I was thinking I have not been with my own mother since I became a pastor in 2001 on Mother's Day. So, and I miss her, but she's with my brother. And so in case she listens to the sermon, which I mean, she does about every other time. Um, happy Mother's Day, mom. I bless you as a godly mother and a blessing to me. And I bless each of you in the way that Paul blessed the church at Thessalonica at the beginning of this letter that we call First Thessalonians. Grace to you and peace. As I've been studying this over the last several weeks, that, that need of grace and peace every day has just been so evident to me in my own life. Just what an amazing thing is just to be constantly aware of my need for grace, for the unmerited favor of God in my life, and for the daily source of the help that I need at the moment I need it. And for peace, the peace that passes understanding and and the peace of living in a secure relationship with the God of the universe who also cares for me and also cares for you. So grace to you and peace this morning. We are still in 1 Thessalonians 1. And I think so often when we read these letters of Paul that Paul wrote to these churches, we often fly through chapter one of these letters. We think of them sort of as introductions and we want to get through the introduction so that we can get to the meat of the letter, that we can get to the good stuff. But in this series, we are spending two weeks in chapter one of this letter. And there is so much to see here as we move through this a little more slowly. Today, as we get a little deeper into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to see Paul continue to encourage the church at Thessalonica. And he encourages them in this section by reminding them of the reality of their salvation experiences. And he does that basing it on what he knows that they heard and then based on their response to that and what they did, how their lives changed in response. And I think we see just in these few verses this morning an amazing picture of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians We see an amazing picture of the new creation that the Thessalonians became in response to the gospel. And I think there's much for us to learn here this morning. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for this chance to come together. And and God, really to come together this morning, not to, to praise our mothers, but God, just to focus our hearts and our minds on you first and foremost. God, element of this morning, God, talk about in this message, what we sing about, what every element of this morning, God, would be focused on you and would point to you. And I pray that what I speak this morning would reflect your heart. And God, that it would um, be pleasing to you and that you would be made much of. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, again, just a little bit of a recap from last week about this this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Paul wrote this letter to this influential church. And this church was influential in part because of the city, Thessalonica, where it was located. But it was also influential just because of the amazing faithfulness of the people in this church. 
Thessalonica was um, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. So it was under Roman rule. But it was interesting because um, the Romans had a unique, because of the importance of Thessalonica, had a unique um, and interesting relationship with this city and with its people. They had a motive, because of how important the city was, they had a motive to keep the Thessalonians happy. And they had a motive to keep them docile. They did not want anything, um, any sort of uprising to happen. So they had this motivation to keep them happy and to keep them docile because they really needed Thessalonica to operate smoothly. And because of that, the Roman government allowed a lot of benefit to flow into this city and to her people. And that benefit that came from Rome made the Thessalonians very beholden to Rome. So when Christianity began to spread in Thessalonica, no one was happy about it. The Romans were concerned that this um, Christian claim of a new king might lead to some sort of rebellion or some sort of revolt. And the Thessalonians were afraid that the Christians' new way of life might disrupt this sort of flow of bounty that was coming to them from Rome. So the church was under pressure from all sides. It was under so much pressure that Paul and his team were eventually pushed out, which led to, obviously, this letter later on. I think there's a real identity that we can have with the Thessalonians. And I was thinking about this as I started studying it several weeks ago. I think for many of us as Christians, we, like the Thessalonians, made peace with the occupation of Rome. We have made peace with the ways of the world. In much as the same way they made peace with Rome. We like a threat to the us. I think we struggle when Christianity poses a threat to the disruption of the bounty that we receive as people in this culture. We, we, um, it causes us, because we are uncomfortable with the thought of disruption, it causes us, um, instead of living differently... It causes us to stay silent with our faith or to just sort of blend in with the world. We fear what it might mean if we live differently. We fear what it might mean in such a way that it sometimes causes Christians to retreat and to keep everything so private. And sometimes it pushes non-Christians completely away from Christ altogether. So the Romans feared the idea that this Christian king might mean a rejection of the Roman emperor. And for us, though, the idea of Christ, our king, and submission to him is not so much a threat to an earthly king as much as it is a threat to the kingdom of ourselves. Because we are an autonomous people. We don't like anyone telling us what to do, and we certainly don't want to face consequences for being different. I think we share a lot of potential struggle with the Thessalonians, and I think we have much to learn from this letter. Today, our text is going to be in 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 4. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 10, if you would please turn there. Um, Thessalonians is towards the back of the New Testament. Again, it's after the book of Colossians. It's before the book of Hebrews and the very little book of Philemon. Um, all the T-books are together, so if you can find the T-books, you can find First Thessal- Thessalonians. It's the first one, because they're alphabetical. And I'd like you to please stand with me, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, 
as a sign that we are all hearing from God's word together this morning. The, the words will be on the screen. I would love for you to read these words with me. We're going to start in verse 4 of First Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. May the fruit So last week in verses 1 through 3, Paul acknowledged the fruit and the reality of the Thessalonians' current active faith. He talked about their works of faith. He talked about their labors of love. He talked about their steadfastness of hope. This week, Paul focuses on their confidence, on Paul's confidence in the Thessalonians' past salvation experience. His confidence that it was real. He says this. We know he, we know God has chosen you. Another way to say that is, we know that you are now in the family of God. In our very Christian parlance, he says, we know that you are saved. We know this because we were there. And we know the way the gospel came to you. And we know it changed you in such a way that you no longer look like the world. You look like the Lord. And he breaks this up into essentially what you heard and then what you did. And I think the first part of this is really interesting. He says this, we, for we know, brothers, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul, I think Paul goes back here because he knows that the stress, especially that these new believers were under in Thessalonica, he knows that in the stress of following Christ in the midst of pressure and in the midst of persecution can often cause us and it could cause them to question their faith. And so he is reminding them of the reality of their new identity. Paul reminds them of the spirit-filled message of the gospel they received. He said, it was real, and your response to it was real. I've been thinking a lot about this this week. I think this is so important for us, too, because oftentimes the struggles of life, oftentimes the pressures that we feel as Christians living in a lost world can cause us to wonder, is this all real? Is this worth it? Sometimes when we struggle with sin, an ongoing struggle, we may wonder if we have the Holy Spirit living in us at all. Do we really have a relationship with God? I know there are times in my life when I have looked at my life and I have wondered, am I really saved? And I know I'm not alone in that. I have heard that from many of you. 
for many different reasons. And you know what? I think it is perfectly good. And even we are even told that we need to ask ourselves that question at times. If somebody says that to me, I never jump in and cut them off and say, oh, I know you're saved. That is not my call to make. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 5, he, he challenged the Corinthians to examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. I think it's good to look at ourselves deeply. And sometimes in that examination of ourselves, we find these spiritual markers in our life that remind us who we are and of who lives inside of us. We know as Christ followers that if we're in relationship with him, the Holy Spirit lives inside us, each and every Christ follower. Sometimes we find markers like that, but sometimes when we examine, we might find that even though we've been religious and gone through all the right motions, we may realize that we don't have a relationship with God at all. And sometimes that sounds like a scary realization that you may not want to know, but the ramifications of not making that realization are much scarier. And Paul says here, he reminds them of the reality of their salvation. I think one of the most powerful things we do here at First SF in our baptism services is that we have people being baptized write down and read a short testimony of their salvation experience. And I think these are powerful and they're beautiful for us. Like we love to watch and hear people's stories. But for the person being baptized, that exercise helps them see how real their own salvation experience was. How real it was when they realized that sin separated them from God. When it, when, how real it was when they realized that they needed a relationship with God, both now and for eternity. When they first realized that God sacrificed his own son as a means for us to have relationship with him. How they knew deep inside that God was calling them to turn from the life they were living and to turn towards God in full submission and full surrender. It's powerful when they write that. And it's powerful because the longer that we live our lives, the longer that we move into, into just doing life and we move away from our first encounter with Jesus, the easier it is to forget that that happened and how real it was. So I want to encourage you guys this morning to think back to when you first realized who Jesus was and you first realized that you needed a relationship with him. The truth is that if we, if you know the Lord, every one of you has a story and it is not always super dramatic, but it always includes something personally real and powerful for you. I encourage you at some point, spend some time and write down your story. How did it look for you? What did you feel? How did you change? I encourage you, don't make it about a list of steps you took. Well, I know I'm a Christian because I walked down to the front at this age. Or I know I'm a Christian because I went through confirmation. Or I know I'm a Christian because I got baptized. Those may be part of your story, but what I encourage you to do is to focus on remembering what happened in your heart. What was it that finally broke through for you? Maybe your story is one of those moment stories when you just got it. And you just accepted and surrendered to Christ and your life changed radically. But maybe your story is more like mine, a little harder to pin down. 
I remember when I, I was raised in a church that didn't really talk about sort of a decision or a moment of salvation. You were sort of born into the church and born into Christianity based on your parents. And so when I got to college and I started hearing people ask me, you know, when did you become a Christian? And I couldn't really answer that question. And I thought I need to, it made me really go back and reflect. And I saw this amazing picture. I was raised in a home where I never did not know about Christ. I was in the church my whole life. My parents, we did devotionals as a family. I remember in junior high calling my dad out of bed to come to my room to explain something that I was reading in my Bible. I was incredibly drawn to spiritual things and my family helped foster that. And then I went to confirmation class. And and 95% of my confirmation class, they were probably just doing that because that's what you did. But for me, as I reflected back, I knew when I made a confession of my faith in that class, I knew that it was real for me. I needed a Savior, and I trusted that God's provision for a Savior was Jesus. But you know what my church didn't do real well? They didn't teach a lot about a relationship with Jesus. So in my mind, what being a Christian meant was doing this and not doing this. So I became very behavior focused. But you know what? In my freshman year in college, I went to a revival on my college campus in a tent. And at that, I heard about a relationship. And something changed in me. I knew I was safe, but I did not have an intimate connection with God. He was scary for me and he was just a rule giver. And at that moment... I decided I want a relationship with him. And a different part of my life in Christ started. But you know what? Even in that, in my church world, there wasn't a place to bring those really difficult things that you struggle with. That you don't know what to do with, that go against God's word, but feel really strong. And I didn't know what to do with. So in my relationship with God, I had a little compartment that I refused to let him into. And eventually that little compartment took over. And at age 30, I left my wife. And I walked away. But when I look back, I remember sitting on a floor in the little garage apartment I lived in. And I I was seeking God. I knew he had something for me. And all I heard him say over and over again, I love you. And I love you just like you are, but I love you too much to leave you here. And I began another step in my journey When I find myself in doubt today, I always have those markers. I have my childhood. I have my confirmation class. I have that revival. And I have that moment on the apartment floor to remind me that I am his now and forever. No one can ever take your story from you. They can ridicule it. They can challenge it. They can question it. But they can never take it. From you. It is so important for you to remember how it started. If it's real for you, you will be able to do that. But if it's not real for you, and you can't seem to ever get to a place where you know that you moved into relationship with Him, maybe that very reality is the Holy Spirit prompting you today to make a decision to follow Him. And I implore you, if you don't have a story, talk to someone today. Maybe the day that your story starts. So first, Paul starts this, letter, this section with that, your this text. 
but because I was there. It was spirit-filled and it was real. And then he goes into the second part of this text. But I also know that it was real because of what you did afterward. You began to imitate us and the Lord. This passage was so insightful for me. This is something I had not thought about. This idea of the authenticity of your salvation and the fruit of your salvation going together. I thought about this because Nick Ripkin said at the Compelled Conference a couple weeks ago, he said this, Satan can copy every gift of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is sometimes what we think is fruit is not really fruit. And I think that's why it's so important to assess the reality of your salvation Not just the good works that characterize your life, but the reality of that salvation, as Paul did, he assessed both. He says, I know your salvation was real, and then we saw this amazing fruit of a changed life in the way you imitated us and the Lord. For ancient students, it was understood that teaching and learning involved imitating their teachers and their leaders. There are so many exhortations in the New Testament for church members to imitate their leaders. And we have to remember that the early church did not have the compiled word of God. They didn't have this clear picture of Jesus that we can see in the Gospels. They didn't have a clear picture of the lives of the apostles. There were no veteran leaders on the ground. It was new at that point to everybody. They learned to be Christ-like by watching and following Paul and the others through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul more than once challenged new Christians to imitate him as he imitated Christ. He didn't say imitate me as I have a meltdown with my kids or imitate me as I spend my money foolishly or or imitate me as I engage in a little road rage. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now about this imitating thing, I'd like to bring my wife, the mother of my children, into this. I don't think she's in here today. Thank goodness. Um, So I have a beautiful wife. I do. And I also think that my wife is so stylish and tasteful. I, I love everything about her appearance. Even today, she's wearing one of those bright orange first kid shirt, and she is rocking it. I love the simplicity of, of her wardrobe times. Just, I think it's beautiful. And I may, at times, have suggested to my girls that they should follow her example. So they are really into earrings. And they may show me earrings they like. And I may, at times, have suggested that a nice, simple pair of pearl earrings or some diamond studs might look nicer. And I usually get, which I'm sure they just did, an incredible eye roll. That kind that goes all the way back in your head that your mother told you would stick that way. That's the kind of eye roll I get. And then I go to Stephanie. I just lament, how can they not understand this? And Stephanie reminds me that our hope is not that our teenage girls dress like their 51-year-old mother. (laughs) And I just take a deep breath. I know she's right. The imitation that Paul is talking about is not a physical one. It is not a surface one. It is not imitating a veneer. He is talking about imitating at a deeper level. And at the end of the day, I don't care what kind of earrings my daughters wear, but my hope is that they will imitate 
Stephanie's commitment to time in the word, her commitment to prayer, her commitment to gracious, intentional, obedient living. Our lives should demonstrate to others what following Jesus looks like. This is hard for us because it feels prideful to think that others should imitate us. Part of that is because we often, most of us, readily see our own faults and our own failures. And as an aside, never trust somebody who never admits a struggle or who paints themselves always as the example to follow. What we are talking about when we talk about this idea of imitating is something much deeper than that. One of the guys, this is, this is true of, of how hard this is for us. At our, we were talking about this very idea at our community group Sunday. And one of the guys with a very scared look on his face said, What would a fellow Christian really become if he imitated me? And I think all of us kind of took a deep breath. And had a look of horror on our face at the thought of that. Because we know ourselves. And the thought of Christians learning Christ from us can be very scary. But we're called to represent Christ to the world. But we are not called to present perfection to people. We are not called to present an image of someone who has arrived or an image of someone who has no struggles or an image of someone who has no rough edges or an image of someone who has no areas of their life where God is still at work. We are called to present someone on a path of following Christ with all of its ups and downs. The last thing we want to do is show people how they should be like us. We want to show people someone who is seeking to grow more like Christ day by day. Someone who is growing in intimacy with Christ day by day. If that is you, regardless of where you are on your journey today, then you have something in your life worthy of imitation. And I believe there are many in this room today who fit that description. Paul commends the reality that as the Thessalonians have imitated both them, both Paul, and as they've imitated the Lord, their lives have begun to look more like the Lord. And he gives five ways that they look like Jesus. It's not an exhaustive list. It is a representative list. He says, number one, imitators of Jesus, imitators of the Lord, number one, exhibit joy even in affliction. In verse six, he says, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Their lives were not easy, but like Jesus, they suffered affliction with joy. We're, we're memorizing Hebrews 12. Here's, a, here's the deal. Here's why you memorize. Every time you memorize something, it pops up all the time. Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Imitators of Jesus live with, in good times and bad, a joy that transcends their circumstances. Because it is a joy empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number two, imitators of the Lord lead and influence others. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. As the Thessalonians began to imitate Jesus, others began to imitate them. It is a perfect picture of how discipleship should work in the church. Imitators of Jesus become reflections of Jesus that other people imitate. Number three, 
Imitators of the Lord share the good news in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. How amazing a statement is that? We don't have to say anything. You're doing it. Imitators of Jesus should first and foremost imitate him in his mission to share the good news, which is what Jesus did. Now, granted, Jesus was the embodiment of the good news. It was easier. It was more natural for him. It was like, hi, I'm Jesus the Christ, Savior of the world. What's your name? It's not always so easy and natural for us, but it's what we are called to. We are his representatives. We are called to go into all the world and to make disciples. Paul was a great example of this for the young Thessalonian church, but he's also a great example of this for us because he went to Thessalonica as an evangelist sharing the good news, but he didn't stop there. This letter is proof he didn't stop there. He was always helping everyone, no matter whether they were lost or saved. He was always helping everyone take one step closer to intimacy with Jesus. We cannot call ourselves imitators of Jesus if we hold the good news deep inside of us. Imitators of Jesus share the good news. Number four. Imitators of the Lord turn away from idols and turn toward God. Verse 9, you turned from idols to serve, from idols to serve the living and true God. Now we may think we are uh, removed from idolatry here in 2018 in America, but all sin has its root in idolatry. We idolize plenty of things, chips and success and money and power and control and a million other things. The Thessalonians' refusal to worship the idols of their culture and to worship God alone set them apart. And it set them up for the persecution that they faced and the persecution that they would face. They imitated Jesus, who found his sole source of value and of worth and of security in his Father. Imitators of Jesus turn away from the world and they turn toward God. Finally, imitators of the Lord put their focus on eternity. Verse 10, you wait for his son from heaven. As we talked about last week, the Thessalonians had a steadfastness of hope. They were not living in the temporal. They were not living in the the immediate. They had eternal hope in Jesus' return. And in this, they were imitating Jesus, who also never lost sight of the eternal perspective of of his suffering. It is a steadfast hope in eternity that enables us to endure life on earth with grace and with mercy and with hope. Imitators of the Lord hope in the eternal and not in the temporal. This is a representative list. Like I said, this isn't all. We have the whole word of God to show us what it means to look like Jesus. It means we show mercy It means we show humility. It means we share and exhibit and and show grace. It means we are tender and kind-hearted. But it also means at times we speak with boldness. It means that we live a life of purity. It means we have sacrificial hearts. It means we love selflessly. It means we persevere. It means that we are committed to our calling. It means that we endure and are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And the list goes on and on and on. As followers of Jesus, we are learners of him. Not just learning about him, 
but learning the reality of who he is, the reality of what he has called us to, and learning what it means to be in an intimate relationship with him. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And you may be thinking, yes, but I cannot do all of that. And you are absolutely right. And that is why you must go back to your salvation experience. Where you were immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Who Jesus says is there to remind you of what you are to do. And then Paul will even say later in this book, uh, in this letter in chapter 5, Paul says, actually what God calls you to do, he does it. He does it in and through you. The Holy Spirit living in you empowers the obedience that we are called to. While we cannot do it on our own, while we will at times fail, if your life is one that you have been saved by for eternity by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you should always want to do the right thing. You should want to imitate Christ with your life. And my question for you is, do you want to imitate him? I know many of you are scared. Many of you feel defeated. Many of you have your doubts. And God welcomes those. And you know where he welcomes those? At his throne of grace. At his throne of grace. He says, bring all of that. And I will give you mercy. And I will give you grace for a well-timed help. If you want to imitate the Lord to this world, take everything you have to his throne of grace. Approach him today with confidence.